Let's pray. Where else would we go, Lord? To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So I pray that we would stick with your word here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, and that we wouldn't just hear the word of Paul, but Paul would want us to hear what this is, not simply the word of man, but the very word of God, the voice of the good shepherd, the wonderful counselor, all over this text. Please help us not to try to be wiser than your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Picture a four-sided figure. In the world of geometry, uh, a quadrilateral. Okay? If it helps you to draw one on your sermon notes in front of you, please do so. I, I drew one on my notes here in front of me. Uh, if you're going to, then the way that you should do it is take your square, your rectangle, or whatever, and begin with it in your mind at 90 degrees, but then pitch it 45 degrees so that the point of your quadrilateral is up here, and then there's a point down here. Does that make sense? Point here, point here. Uh, in other words, what you're going to draw basically is a diamond, a diamond shape. Imagine a diamond shape, and you're in the ballpark, if you excuse the pun. Now, whether you've drawn it or not, can you picture it? Now, let's do some labeling. A quadrilateral on an angle looking like a diamond. On the left side of your diamond, write the word reason, R-E-A-S-O-N, reason. At the bottom point that it's balancing on, write the word experience, experience. On the right side of your diamond, the right point, write the word tradition, tradition. Now there's one more word that I'd like for you to write down to complete your artwork this morning, and it's the word scripture, and that's on the top. Bible, word of God, okay? So do you have it? A quadrilateral, four-sided, diamond-looking figure with four sides and four points. And if you're moving in a counterclockwise fashion around your figure, starting at nine o'clock, you've got reason, six o'clock, you've got experience, Three o'clock, am I doing this right for you? Three o'clock is going to be tradition. And then 12 noon, 12 midnight is scripture. Okay, so much for the art lesson. Why did we do this? Well, last century there was a, a Methodist theologian by the name of Albert Outler. And Outler, being a Methodist, was interested in the thought of John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism. And though Wesley was not nearly as persnickety and tidy about his categories as Outler was, Outler noticed something as he watched the life and thought of Wesley on paper, as he studied the convictions and the beliefs of John Wesley. He noticed that there was a pattern. You read Wesley's sermons, you read his books, and you know, first of all, that he appreciated with uh, every fiber of his being the exercise of human reason when it came to the Christian faith. Wesley 
prized the tradition of the life of the mind and was an extraordinary scholar. At the same time, Wesley also flew the banner for human experience. So not just reasoning the truth, but reveling in the truth. This is probably the great achievement of Legacy's Wesley, uh, sorry, uh, Wesley's legacy, in my opinion. He cared very deeply about real, powerful, holy, transforming engagement with the things that you believe, okay? So experience, uh, living out of what you believe. It's a big deal for Wesley. Now, finally, the, the last part of your, uh, the bottom part of your diamond, tradition. Wesley was actually a man of two traditions. He was a part of the Anglican church uh, and also the budding Methodist movement, which he unwittingly founded. Although he was sort of a man of two traditions, it's really clear he was not interested in creating something new. He wanted to preserve rather something very, very old. And so he delighted in church tradition. Now, all that being said, though clearly Wesley believed in human tradition, human reason, human experience, all that together, the ultimate source of authority for John Wesley was the Bible. The Bible and the Bible alone provided the primary authority for life. You put your quadrilateral together, and it's the one that goes on top. It is to enjoy pride of place and chief influence in life. So give your reason and your experience and your tradition their due, absolutely. But the buck stops with the Bible. That's what Wesley thought. Wesley famously once wrote, God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very reason he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. Hmm. Well, although it's hard to know where Wesley stood on some issues, it is not difficult to discern what he believed about ultimate authority in human life. That's not a question. Wesley believed in biblical authority. He was actually called a Bible bigot in his day. A Bible bigot. You can call me that anytime. I'm partial. Guilty as charged. Let's be biased toward the Bible. Now, my guess is that most of us here are that way. We believe Wesley's way of thinking about things. Outler's really famous Wesleyan quadrilateral that you just drew on your notes, that fits us just fine. Amen? That being the case, please listen closely. Mount Evangelical Free Church, lend God your ears. Beware the poverty of the secular psychologies and believe in the richness of Christ-centered soul care. Beware the poverty of the secular psychologies and believe in the richness of Christ-centered soul care. Trusting your Bibles are open as well as your minds. Please listen carefully to the very word of God in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It's page 984 
in the Red Bibles, if you'd like one of those, 984 in the Red Bibles. Colossians 2.8, the Bible says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. First point today, Mount Evangelical Free Church, we must come to see first the emptiness of the world's wisdom. We must come to see the emptiness of the world's wisdom. Verse 8, Paul begins by saying, see to it. See to it. It's a word in his language that would mean beware or be on your guard. See to it. The same word is found in Mark 13, 9, when Jesus wants to warn his disciples of those who will persecute them at the time of the end. Jesus says, see to it. Beware. Be on your guard. You will be persecuted. Paul uses the same word here. So the very last thing the apostle would desire for us is to be cavalier or dismissive or disdainful about what I'm going to say over the next 15 minutes. That's our great temptation. Add to that that Paul continues to ratchet up his rhetoric in verse 8 by saying, see to it that no one takes you captive. Some of the older translations say, spoil you. Spoil you. Now that image used here is straight out of Pirates of the Caribbean. Think Johnny Depp. Think Captain Jack Sparrow. And you are his unwitting victim. Be on your guard that no one takes you captive. Spoil you. Plunder you. Carry you off as pirate's booty. That's what Paul's saying here. You think, sheesh. This guy's awfully lathered up about something. What is it? What's, what's he in such a twist about? What would set off alarm signals like this for him in the ancient city of Colossae? Or in the 21st century in Mound, Minnesota? What is he so worked up about? Well, let's see what he's worked up about. Verse 8 says, philosophy and empty deceit. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. What's that? Well, if you were to turn, you don't have to, but if you were to turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 18, you would find the Apostle Paul smack in the ancient city of Athens preaching to the people who were at the local gathering places. And Luke writes in Acts 17, 18, that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, there's our word, philosophers, conversed with him. And some said about Paul, what does this babbler wish to say? Condescending to him. Paul was a babbler. And that word that Luke uses in Acts 17, 18, philosophers, it's the same one that Paul uses here in Colossians 2, 8. So what does that mean for us? Well, author Robert Kellerman explains, 
quote, philosophy in Paul's day focused on the diagnosing and healing of diseases of the soul produced by false beliefs and mishandled desires that were cured by expert talk based on a systematic theory of human well-being. Kellerman concludes, clearly ancient philosophy and modern psychology cover the same terrain. This is what arrested me about a month ago as I read this. Listen once again. Kellerman says, clearly ancient philosophy and modern psychology cover the same terrain. Now, just so you know, Kellerman is biased. He's a biblical counselor. I have been reading, I've been up to my eyeballs in, in secular psychology over the last year. That's what they would say too. Same terrain. Same terrain. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. And it's not enough for Paul to simply use the term philosophy, right? He feels compelled to add, and empty deceit. Just in case we weren't clear. He does this, I believe, because the word philosophy enjoyed a kind of cultural status in the first century, even among professing Christians, similar to what the word psychology enjoys today among 21st century Christians. See how controversial this is? Paul calls it empty deceit. He wants to take that word philosophy, or our word psychology, not only the word, but the whole system. He just wants to take it down a peg. For Paul, secular psychology was vain. It was empty. It was a human tradition appealing to worldly elementary principles. And that's not the worst problem. It's not the worst problem. The worst problem of this whole mess is that the secular psychologies are, in the words of the inspired apostle, not according to Christ. Verse 8. Last four words are the whole shooting match in verse 8. Not according to Christ. This philosophy, this psychology, isn't just of the world. In its rawest and most robust form, it is opposed to heaven. It's not according to Christ. I'd like to quote Dr. R. Albert Moeller, who's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and increasingly one of the most faithful and important and articulate public Christian figures in America today. Moeller, when CNN wants to hear a Bible believer with a PhD, they, they go to Moeller, okay? And they should. <laughs> Dr. Moeller writes, one of the most revolutionary aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the assumption that our main problem is inside of us and our only hope for rescue comes from outside. What a sentence. In matters of counseling, Moeller says, the secular worldview driven by the engine of therapy says precisely the opposite. Our problem is something outside of us and the rescue we need comes from within. Or as John Owen said at the beginning of our service, 1668, we expect the same hand that wounds us to heal us, and it can't. And Moeller continues, he says, mixing secular psychology with the church's theology makes the gospel something it is not, and the history of secular counseling bears witness to this fact. Now, that's true. I'll just give you a few examples. 
Uh, Sigmund Freud told us that our problem is that we are over-socialized and that we need to be treated by therapy. Skinner said that our, our conditioning is the problem. Our conditioning is the problem. And we must be people who are formed by the change of our outer, outward behaviors. Maslow and Rogers told us that we are inherently good and what we faced is societal oppression and we simply need to bring out what is already there. We need self-actualization. Uh, Bettelheim, uh, Moeller says, tells us to get in touch with our stories and the list goes on and on and on, and it does. Moeller concludes, yet one of the great tragedies of our age is that the average Christian bookstore is teeming with literature promoting the agenda of secular psychology. He says, sadly, this literature succeeds in the Christian market by barely camouflaging the secular worldview it promotes, end quote. Wow. You say, well, why does it not seem true? And my answer is Proverbs 14.12. Proverbs 14.12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. There is a way that seems right. It seems so right, but its end is the way of death. And you say, why are you doing this to me? And my answer is Colossians 2.4, where Paul says, I say this so that no one may delude you with plausible sounding arguments. I say this because I love you. Beware the poverty of the secular psychologies. I say the secular psychologies because there's not just a psychology. There's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. Psychologies. Mount Evangelical Free Church, we must come to see the emptiness of the world's wisdom. Second point today. Mount Free Church, we must come to see the fullness of the wisdom of Christ. We must come to see the fullness of the wisdom of Christ. Now, whenever God forbids something, it's only because he's offering something so far better. Amen? You experienced that? I have. Listen now to the full sermon text for this morning. Colossians 2, 8 to 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That sounds like a trade-up. This is my favorite kind of sermon to preach, by the way. Not this. This. That's my favorite kind of sermon. To Not this. This. And this is Jesus. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I have a great need for Christ. And I have a great Christ for my need. Hmm. 
Modern authors Elise Fitzpatrick and Dennis Johnson ask, does it seem too simplistic to claim that in Christ lies the power to set struggling people free? Can Jesus really free men and women from addictive appetites, whether physical or mental? Cut through hearts hardened and turned poisonous by long years of bitter grudge bearing and blame shifting? Can Jesus make self-absorbed husbands into sacrificial servant leaders? Can Jesus make defiant or untrusting wives into daughters of the king set free to glorify their Lord? And I would add, can Jesus turn the hearts of children to their parents, although folly is bound up in them? They finish by asking, is the gospel really a panacea? A cure-all? Or is it just one more medicine show product, hyped by claims that no elixir could fulfill? Well, you tell me. What does Scripture say? If you were with us last week, you know what it says. Scripture's mission is to provide the comprehensive resource for the care of the soul. Indeed, God's world allows us to observe the condition of our souls. Amen. God's world allows us to observe our condition. But only God's word offers us the cure for our souls. And that cure is Christ. Christ's pardon for your sins on the cross. Christ's power for your obedience through his resurrection. Christ's pleasure to sweeten all of your days. Christ's people in the church to provide loving support and counsel and correction and accountability to go deep with each other and to go long with each other, not short and shallow, which tends to be the church's specialty. Colossians 2 9 to 10 says, In him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Secular psychology is empty. But Christ, Christ is full. He's full. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, recall that the heartbeat of Paul's theology is union with Christ. If you remember that from seven months in Ephesians, union with Jesus. That's Paul's big teaching, really, through all of his letters. That's Ephesians, but that's also Colossians. Notice the explicit connection with the doctrine of union with Christ in verse 9. You see it? In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That is, Jesus is the God-man. He's fully God, fully man. In him, now verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Wow. What's that mean? I'm just beginning to discover what it means. But I have the sneaking suspicion that it has something to do with Jesus as a wonderful counselor. 
That's what I think it means. And we, his church, as growing in our convictions and our competencies to counsel one another. Because, if you were to turn back to Colossians 2, 3, in Christ are hidden, not some, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And just a word on that as we close. The Bible says that not some, but all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. Colossians 2, 3 says it. The Bible says it so. Jesus is not empty. He's full. Are you suffering right now? Are you depressed right now? Are you anxious, addicted, angry? Are you? If you are, it is my pleasure to tell you this morning that you don't need another therapy. You need a theology. A theology brought all the way home to your life. You need a person, actually. You need Jesus. And if you don't have Jesus, you can come to him today. You can turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus today and be saved. You say, well, I have Jesus, and I'm still loaded down with all the same junk that I had before I met him. Maybe that's you. And if that's you, then let me guide you to one little word in Colossians 2.3 that might explain a few things. And that word is the word hidden. See that there, verse 3? Hidden. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, these treasures are not hidden from you if you're a believer. They're hidden for you if you're a believer. That's why when someone is dealing with any of these personal problems that we just talked about, when you say to them, Jesus is the answer, all they can think of is a child's eight-key tin toy piano. You're thinking grand piano. They're just thinking, really? Something that limited could be as complex as the music of my life? They don't see that Jesus is the answer. So you get to enter into Jesus by faith to see it. And then when you begin to see it, things begin to change. But these things are hidden in him, not from you as a believer, but for you as a believer. This is the way that Jesus put it in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. He said in a prayer, he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to children Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. What's that mean? If you know Christ, it means wisdom and counsel and life change are not hidden from you in Christ, they're for you in Christ, which means you need to ask him. You need to ask him. You must humble yourself and turn from every empty worldly resource and throw yourself on him and him alone. Every resource you have needed, currently need, or will ever need for life and godliness, for the care of your soul is found in Christ. And Christ is found in the pages of this book by the power of the Spirit. Everything you need for life and godliness is found in his word. But you have to dig. 
That's the difference. And most of us don't. You have to dig. You have to get your shovel and your pickaxe and your bucket and start digging. I heard John Piper say that if you rake, you will get leaves. If you dig, you will get gold. Amen? Mount Evangelical Free Church, we must come to see the fullness of the wisdom of Christ. Say, I'd like to know some of that. Hang in there. That's where we're going the next 15 weeks. So let's wrap it up. Beware the poverty of secular psychologies and believe in the richness of Christ-centered soul care. Mount Free Church, we must come to see the emptiness of the world's wisdom. We must come to see the fullness of the wisdom of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.30, the Bible says that it is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In this church, we have dwelt long over these past years on Christ as our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Lord willing, just always will. Always. All we're seeking to do with this sermon series is stir into the mix that first benefit of union with Christ that Paul explicitly mentions in 1 Corinthians 1.30. I just didn't know what it meant until more recently. It is because of God that we are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Been there all along. And we're going to put a full court press on that promise this season, Lord willing. Next Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And I rarely make promises, rarely. However, two years ago I promised never again to let a Sanctity of Life Sunday pass us by without addressing the topic of abortion from this pulpit. And that is precisely what I plan to do one week from today. We're going to stay in the series, but with an eye of application toward the abortion issue, with a sermon drawn from the book of Genesis entitled, Dust, Breath, and Death, The Making and Marring of Man and Its Implications for Counseling. Please pray for this sermon one week from today. And let's pray right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can say one thing each time. One thing. And today that thing is that Christ is full. And when we come to you, tank empty. Because ironically, we've looked for the resources within us or somewhere outside the word in the world. Lord, we, we come sheepishly, pun intended, to our shepherd. And we see that all along, that if you, if you know how to save us on the front end of our journey, you can save us all the way along our journey. The gospel is not simply a get out of hell free card, although it certainly is. It is increasing down payments of heaven on earth for our souls if we would continue to have it. 
And so I pray, Father, that we would continue to press into your son. We're just not going to see this unless we dwell long on texts like this. In Jesus, it's a stunning claim. It is an affront to the mental health establishments in this country, around the world, and in many Christian schools. It really is. In Jesus, Jesus is enough. You're enough. So, Lord, help us not just to say that. Help us to live that with our lives. May we be increasingly people of convictions about biblical counseling, yes. But then, Lord, please, please, sooner rather than later, help us to develop our, our competencies in biblical counseling. Help us to bring the, the manna of the word of God to our own hearts, to our families, to our neighbors, to those on our lists of five, to those that we love. Please help us to become rich and wise in the care of the soul. In Jesus' name, amen.